to a point actually where you end up um, covering a whole chapter at a time, and that's a that's a whole idea. Uh, in the in the early part, it's it's necessary to take um, take things a little slower. I think we want to do our best to cover um, cover Revelation in depth. Uh, Maybe a little more in depth than we usually do with the way we deal with with, with some text, but I think I think we'll find it, it worth it. So uh, this morning we'll be in Revelation chapter one, uh, verses uh, four through eight, and I'll I'll read those to you now. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and, to his, and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. We, uh, we get here, uh, just a, as, a, as a technical note, the, the address or, or the, um, the, the designation of the purpose of the book, it is written to the seven churches in Asia. Anytime you see the number seven come up in Revelation, uh, it's best to, to deal with it. We'll deal with it more in depth later. We'll simply say at this point that anytime the number seven comes up, you should just view it as the number of completion. It is used symbolically to mean that which is complete, that which is good. If you see the number seven, you should associate it with something good, something complete, the fullness. It is, it is a number of fullness. So when he says he's writing to the seven churches at Asia, he's going to write to seven specific churches. The reason why is that we are getting this from the Apostle John. He is the bishop to the churches uh, in in Asia, uh, we would call it uh, modern day Turkey. To these churches in modern day, uh, what is now in modern day Turkey, is the bishop to them, and he is going to write to them. But his message to them is not going to be limited simply to those only those seven churches, or his his point is going not going to be only for those seven churches, but rather it is intended especially with the designation of seven, the intentionally chosen seven churches, the point that we should assume is that this is for all churches everywhere, that, that this message is written in, in completeness and in toto for, uh, uh, for all of the churches in Turkey, all of the churches that John had, had written, uh, written to or dealt with ever, and even then extending into all of the churches in, our, in history and all of the churches between the time of John and now, in other words, this is a book, and it's a message to the to the church of which we are certainly a part. So we know that that we uh, we can apply this book to us. So John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, in peace from Him who wa who is and who was and who is to come. And so let me just pause before I attack what just happened there and repeat what I said last week. And that is this, is that the book of Revelation makes more allusion to the Old Testament or more reference to the Old Testament than all of the other New Testament books combined. In fact, every sentence that we, that we talk about from here on will probably have an Old Testament, uh, in, an Old Testament origin. It will come from, 
from the Old Testament. I was thinking about this this week. I go, so why did John, why does John, and, and more importantly, believing this to be the inspired word of God, why does God use so much of the Old Testament as he is, he is crafting the words of Revelation? And I, I don't have a 100% answer, but I would say part of it is this, is that Revelation, as, as the final book of, of the canon, as the final book of inspired scripture, is essentially the recap of all of history and everything that came before it. And so the allusions to the Old Testament, the references to the Old Testament, tie together this idea that God himself has been at work in all of history. That God from the book of Genesis, from Genesis 1.1, uh, everything that it says about him in Genesis 1-1, everything that it says about him in Exodus, everything it says about him in Deuteronomy, everything that it says about him uh, in uh, Zechariah, everything it says in Daniel, all of these things find their culmination or find their meaning in the person and the actions of Jesus Christ. That history will have a, have a culminating point, that history has an organizing or a focusing point, and that point is Jesus and his, his work. And so God, as he is organizing the last book of scripture is referencing all of these places in the early books of scripture to make this point that it is he and he alone who has been at work in history and that his story and the story that he intends to tell is coming to its to its culmination or as we might say later in revelation to its coronation right and so we're going to see again and again and again uses or allusions to the old testament which which should cause us to understand that there is one story that there there's there's one point in history and that it's unified that that God has been and is at work and so that said, we encounter an illusion immediately in this reference to who God is. And that's what, what's going to happen uh, right away. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is, um, this is commonly understood by, by Bible scholars and understood as others as a reference or allusion to when God himself has said in the past, I am that I am. God has made this reference to himself. So this right away is, is an allusion or a reference to the Old Testament. But more than that, it's a reference to the unchanging character of God. He is that he is. I am that I am. Who shall I say that you are, Moses? Ask God. God tells them, say that I am sent you. It's a reference to his, his character, to his unchanging nature, to the power of who he is. Here again, we get this reference. The one... Who to him who is, reference to Exodus 3.14, and who was and who shall be, or the one who, well, the, for him who is and who was and is to, to come. All of those are, are draw together this idea that the one who sends this book, the one who is giving revelation to the seven churches, the one who gives a message to the churches, is giving the message in a way that spans all time, that spans all of history, that it's in fact transhistorical. In other words, it is the same message, and the message has the same power in all time and every place, because the one who gives it is unaffected by anything outside of himself. Right? He is the one who, who is... 
He is the through him who is. He's the one who was. He's always been. And he is the one who is to come. In other words, I have always been. I always will be. I do not change. And there is nothing in history that has the power to affect me or to change me. He is he is from outside factors unimpactable. There is nothing that changes who God is or what God does outside of him. He is the originator. We'll get to this later in Revelation, but he is the originator. He is the, 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 um, the, the center point. All history springs from him. So history, uh, he is not affected by history. So the, the point being that God has the power to say grace and peace to you. He has the power to ensure grace to the churches because he exists in a way that is trans-historical or not impacted by the events of any given day in, in history. God can say to us grace to you and he can ensure grace to us because he is not surprised by what happens tomorrow. Right? He is yesterday, he is present, and he is tomorrow. He is in all of those places. He's, he is not affected by, by the elements of, of history. Whereas we, in the human sense, we can say, I will do this, but life might happen. You ever use that phrase? If you're a parent, you use that phrase often. Uh, sometimes you say to your children, well, we'll do that tomorrow. Then tomorrow comes and something happens. Something messes up your, your plans. Something messes up what you intended to do. And you can't do whatever you promised your children. And your children will be very upset and they'll say, well, you lied or you didn't tell the truth. And so often what you say is apparent. No, you need to understand that life happens. That is a, is a result of being human. We don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to transpire tomorrow. Frankly, we don't know if tomorrow will breathe. We don't know any of those things. We are trapped within history. God, however, is not like that. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He's transhistorical. He spans all of it. We'll talk about why in a minute. So therefore, he is not affected by history's whims. He's not affected by what tomorrow does. He can say to you with a, with a, with a full promise, with, with full power, and with great, all certainty that you can have grace and peace. He can promise that because he's not affected by, changed by, or surprised by what happens tomorrow. That's what makes him other. He is God, right? And one of those things, he, is, he was, he is, he is, and he is to come. That's God the Father. John's going to continue. We'll come back to that idea, but let's continue to introduce the idea. So then John continues, says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is one of those phrases that you read in the text and you go, I don't really know what that means exactly, right? I think that is a proper response. You would not outside of studying elsewhere in Scripture, in studying especially the Old Testament, you would not know what that, that meant. You might, in, the, in your natural sense, interpret it as seven actual different spirits before, before the throne. However, remember what we said first when we encounter the number seven? We encounter fullness. We encounter perfection. We encounter completeness. This reference, when it says, into the seven spirits before the throne, we understand from the context and we understand from, from the historical background that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the reference is then from God the Father, describes him who is and was and is to come. God the Father, 
to the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne, it, it implies the perfection of the spirit before the throne. This is a reference to the, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, where do we get this? We get this from, from places like Isaiah, where it refers to the Holy Spirit as the sevenfold spirit, right? He is the one who is Lord. He is the one who possesses wisdom. He is the one who possesses understanding. He's the one who possesses counseling. He, he possesses might. He possesses knowledge, and he possesses fear of the Lord. That is Isaiah describing the Holy Spirit. He's the sevenfold spirit. Those are, are his characteristics, the fullness of who, who he is. Uh, we encounter it again in Zechariah where it refers to the, to the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah chapter 4 refers to the, to the Spirit as the seven uh, lamp stands, and it's a reference to, to the Spirit. All of which to say that when we encounter the seven, we encounter completeness. When we encounter the sevenfold Spirit, especially in this text, what you're encountering is the Holy Spirit. Again, the Old Testament is important here to help us understand that. So, grace to you from the Father, Him who was... Uh, him who is and who was and who is to come and grace to you from the spirit who is the sevenfold spirit as told to us in Isaiah as told to us in Zechariah uh, before his throne and then and from Jesus Christ now we should pause then to say this that this is what we would call a trinitarian formulation right a trinitarian formulation simply means this we read every week uh, the creed we stand up and read, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's a Trinitarian belief. We do not have time to go deep into the Trinity this morning, except for to say that the, the uniform belief of the Orthodox Church every place, churches that are, are Christ followers, is that God is one, eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is He is existed from the beginning. Everything that is true of the Father as to their nature is also true of the Son and also true of the Spirit. They do not act independently, but they act co-equally. Uh, 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 co they, 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 they act with one another. They act with the same heart, the same spirit, the same mind. They are one. In Revelation, John is starting out and saying, here's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He starts out with a Trinitarian formulation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he describes all of, all of those. Okay, so now we get to Jesus Christ. And so there's the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is described in three ways. He is the faithful witness. He's going to describe Jesus in a way, and then later on, all throughout the book, he's going to implore us to emulate Jesus in, in, in many of these ways. And the first way he's going to implore us is through the first one, the faithful witness. We hear the word witness um, in a way, so I don't know if you grew up in church or not, but typically Christian people hear the word witness and we think of witnessing, which is another way of saying, in doing evangelism, depending on what kind of church you grew up in. Like if you grew up in the in the, in the kind of church that put a certain kind of emphasis on witnessing, you might have done tracks. If you don't know what tracks are, I say awesome. Uh, we were having this conversation the other day uh, with a friend. I said, do you think there was ever a time in history in which tracks work? And we were debating that. I'm like, I don't know. People did them, so did they work? But here's what tracks are. Tracks are little printed papers that tell people about, about Jesus, right? No problem with that so far. However, the, the track-making people uh, wanted to moonlight as like comedy people mixed with like, uh, like, like practical joker people, usually. And so 
tracks would would have like uh, lines on the front, like big, exciting headlines that said something and try and draw you in so that you would look at it and read inside. And so people would think, I'm going to witness, and the way I'm going to witness is I am going to leave a track so that this person can pick it up and read it. The worst one ever is the people, and this is common in Grand Rapids, no comment as to why, but this is common in Grand Rapids, where you would go into a restaurant, and instead of leaving a tip, you would leave a track that looked like a $20 bill. And so the waitress would be so excited because she's like, I got a $20 bill. And then you would look at it and it wasn't a $20 bill. It was a track, which they opened it up and said, instead of a tip, you got this, this piece of paper. Wouldn't you like to know Jesus? Side note, most people are going to go, not a Jesus is the same dude who's tipping me for my work, right? People don't typically uh, want that, but that's a thing that people actually did. My point in all of this is to say is that I grew up in a tradition that defines witness as that kind of thing. Well, we went out witnessing. What did you do? We handed out tracts. We stood on a street corner. We yelled at, I did not grow up in the angry tradition, right? If you ever go downtown to festival, there's angry people downtown who are like yelling at everybody else and they're witnessing. But we grew up in a happy tradition that also wanted to stand on street corners and other places and witness, which meant to tell other people about Jesus in a way, by the way, that we could do within a 30-minute time period, go back to our, our youth room or to the local Panera Bread and debrief all the witnessing that we did. My point is, is that the way in which we define witness is interesting. However, the word for witness, the word for witness here in the text it does not suggest kind of the happy-go-lucky bringer of, of, of Jack Chick tracks, right? It doesn't suggest even the guy standing on the corner being happy-go-lucky and saying, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? Someone just told me this week, by the way, um, uh, a, a story where I think they got into a car. I, if I get this wrong, I get it wrong. But I think what happened was, no, they pulled up alongside someone who, had, who needed help with their car. Their car was broken down on the side of the road. And instead of really helping them right away with their tire, they started in with, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? Well, here's the problem. If you're alongside a road, right? This happened to Haley and I last week. We broke down at 11 o'clock at night on the side of the highway. It was completely black. I guarantee you, if someone comes up to me and says, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? I know where I'd go right then. I'd go running, right? I'd try and bring Haley with me, but listen. She's young and she's spry. And she can't outrun me, right? So the, all of which to say is that our definition of what a witness is is, is, is very happy-go-lucky. The word, however, for witness is martyr. You might know the word martyr, right? We're, common, we're, we're familiar, but let's say you're not. There's, for instance, famous within Christian circles, a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? They're witnesses. What do the witnesses in Fox's Book of Martyrs have in common? They were killed for being witnesses. And so when we encounter the word faithful witness, he is a witness. That's what martyr means. But I don't think we can ignore the greater reality is that his witness was solidified his witness was, was crystallized. His, his, his witness was, was made most clear in his death, right? In his suffering. It's true that his witness is also tied up in his resurrection, but for the people being written to in the book of Revelation, it is his death and his suffering that are in view because 
John is later on going to call them to endure the same things. I should have noted, and I'll note now at this point, is that the churches are under persecution. The churches are going to be under continual persecution. There's debate whether, uh, whether this book is written under Nero or it's written under the emperors who came, uh, 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 decolation, I think. You know, it's a complex word to pronounce a Roman emperor's name. And uh, it'd be easier if they just named him like, like Bob, right? But the, 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 the ruler after Nero or during Nero, we don't know. But what we know about all of them is that they brought persecutions against Christians. And in fact, for the next 300 years, there's going to be wave after wave after wave after wave after wave of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. And so it makes most sense to understand this when it says faithful witness, faithful martyr, is to understand that the greatest way in, Jesus, in which Jesus was a faithful witness was in his faithfulness to the plan of God, which included his suffering and his death. That'll come in handy later. So Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead. Now, this gets into resurrection, but it is not just resurrection in the uh, when, when we encounter this word, he's the firstborn, like he's the first a a example, the first in primacy, the first in that, all of those things true. But what, what is insinuated here, what is to be understood here, is that when he is the firstborn from the dead, he is the inaugurator of something new. His, his, his being firstborn means he inaugurated something that was new. And what was new was the breaking into history at the resurrection of a new creation. Jesus is the inaugurator of new creation. He is the inaugurator of something that changed the very, uh, the, the, what, the, very uh, the, the very understanding, the very trajectory of where human history thought that it was heading, right? God was not surprised, but when Jesus enters into human history with resurrection, God's plan becomes clear and new creation is inaugurated. He's the firstborn. He is the inaugurator of a new creation. Again, it is important because they will be called to follow after him. In their persecution and in their struggle, they're going to be called to follow after him. So they're going to be called to be faithful martyrs, and they're also going to be called to follow him into new creation into the new kingdom way of, of living. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. This is my favorite thing I discovered all week. My favorite thing I, I studied all week. So Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Where does it come from? It comes from Psalm chapter 2, right? So what it says is that Jesus is the ruler of kings of the earth. You go to Psalm chapter 2 and, and check it out. Here's what's going down. The story that, that's going on is that it, it's, it's talking about how... Actually, let's just let's flip there real quick. In Psalm chapter 2, we get this. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? The kings of earth, right? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, here's what I want you to catch. He who sits in the heavens laugh. The Lord holds them in derision, right? 
Here's what happens. This, this, when it says he's the ruler of the kings of earth, uh, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, is a reference to Psalm chapter 2. What is it a reference to? It is a reference to this reality that you or I or they in the text may live in a time and they may live in a place where the kings or the rulers of the earth might think that they are in control. They might think that they're overcoming. They may think that they're their moment in the, in the sun. And so in... Uh, in their time, they're being attacked either by Nero or the emperors after, after Nero. The Christians are being persecuted. The, the attackers think that they are having victory over him. They might be tempted. Even the, the people in the seven churches might be tempted to think, where is God? Does he not see what they're, they're doing to us? These other emperors, these other kings are winning over us. They might be tempted to think that. In our own time, we might be tempted to think as we go through life and, and life happens, as bad things happen, as awful things happen, as we deal with bad bosses, as we deal with bad politicians, as we deal with, with unfriendly situations, as we increasingly, I believe, in our country deal with more and more persecution. As all of that comes, all of us might be tempted to say, where is God? Psalm chapter 2 answers clearly. He's on his throne. Is he worried about the situation? No. He is holding them in derision. And from the throne, God laughs at the rulers of the earth. Here's why this is great news. If you've ever been in a moment, if you've ever been in a time, if you've ever been in a struggle where you're like, how is this going to turn out? What is going to happen? If you've ever been in a place where, where, where depression or anxiety or any of those things are, are creeping in because you just cannot believe that the situations of your life and of your time and of your struggle are going to turn out, the answer is this, is that there is no king. There is no ruler. There is no bit of history over which Jesus is not the ruler, right? And sometimes we might be tempted to think, well, he can't, well, is this going on? Is Jesus really in control? What is Jesus doing, right? We might be tempted to think that Jesus' grip on human history. We might be tempted to think that, that Jesus' hold on the next event in our life. We might be tempted to think that, that Jesus' ability to, to deal with what confronts us is tenuous at best. That is not how the text of Scripture views it. We might have a view of, of Jesus that, 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 that he's engaged in, 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 in some sort of struggle, and we know that he's going to come out and he's going to win over evil eventually, but we have a view where he's going to win by the, the, the skin of, of his teeth, and sometimes we still worry that does not seem to be the view of Scripture because it seems as though Jesus in the midst of the battle with all that confronts, Jesus in the midst of the battle with evil, Jesus in the midst of all that sits on the throne and he holds the rulers in derision. He sits on the throne and he laughs. You have then a God who is in charge. You have a, then a God who is not in fear. You have then a God who holds your tomorrow and he does not hold it tenuously, but he holds it solidly and he holds it without worry. And with, when, when evil attacks, when the rulers of this world, I know um, that we sort of sit in a, in a weird place in our, our American history, right? I've never really been a doomsday person, but I'm kind of watching what's going on in America and I'm watching what's going on and I can't guarantee you like that America will be here 20 years from now. Like you asked me when I was younger, I'd be like, yeah, America's eternal. 
here's the thing. There's not a lot of eternal empires, right? And here's what I know, is that the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire into which this book and, and, and almost everything else in Scripture uh, in the New Testament was written, that the Roman Empire was way larger, way, way larger than America. What I know is, is it was way more powerful than America. And what I know is that it was way more long-lasting than America. Here's what else I know. It's not there anymore. Like, you can't go to the Roman Empire as it was. There's no, there's no ruler, right? There is no Nero. There is no Trajan. There is no ruler over the Roman Empire. In fact, it's gone. There's not even a, a Constantine. Gone. And so I used to have this view of human history and a view especially of America, like, come on, stop being, it's fine. America will always be there. America will always be there. I can't promise that anymore, man. Weird stuff keeps happening. Like, like the, the increase in our, our immediate surroundings and our increase in, in America seems to be an increase in, in godlessness. It seems to be an increase in, in, um, in a rejection of everything that might, might come from Scripture. It seems to be a, a rejection uh, of logic. It seems to be a rejection of everything that would keep any society firmly rooted, right? If you look at what destroys a society, you have to look around and go, yeah, we're kind of doing a lot of things that destroy societies, right? So I say all of that to say this, is that I've come in recent days to sort of view it like this. I don't know. Like, I watch what happens in the news. I watch what happens in, in, in elections. I watch what happens when increasingly we don't seem to believe in, in um any sort of connection of science to reality. Like, like everything is relative, and the, and the amount of relativity that keeps getting injected into everything along with, with other things makes me think that maybe America is about to get Roman empired. So I can't promise you that happy day. That's, that's like literally the happiest thing I've ever said, right? right? So I don't, I don't have that promise for you anymore that America doesn't get Roman empired. I, I don't know. I'm looking at it going, maybe it's here, maybe it's not. God does it. Here's what I do have a promise for you, though, is that, that the rulers and the kings of earth, with their, with their dividing lines and their borders, right? You know? What do you think, of, think uh, uh, that, that, that the God of the universe thinks when one tiny little politician wants to build a wall and act like he owns a border? Right? And I'm not making a political statement, I'm just speaking to this reality, is that the puny borders of the United States or the borders of Canada or the borders of any of the European nations or the border, what, what is a border, right? I know this, like America, I can't promise you that you'll be here 10 years from now. I can't promise you that you'll be here 20 years from now. I can't promise any of that. What I can promise is this, is that the borders of this land and the rulers of this land are not our ruler anyways. The borders are not our border anyways. This country is not our country anyway. So that even if this nation should be Roman empired, my citizenship remains unchanged. My, 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 my worship or my allegiance to the king remains unchanged, right? And so it is good news in, in a situation like we're in right now where I think that most of us, no matter what side you're on politically, and I don't even really care deeply about politics, but no matter where you are, I, I think 
that most of us understand that this nation is kind of in unrest. There's kind of stuff going on. Here's the good news that if you're a Jesus follower, he is the faithful witness. But not only is he the faithful witness, he's the firstborn. He is an inaugurator of new creation. And my promise about the new creation is America, like the Roman Empire, may come and go, but the new creation never will. He is the inaugurator of new creation, but not only that, he is the king and he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. So that I understand that no matter what happens politically, no matter what happens with rule, no matter what happens with the establishment of, uh, of this nation or any other nation so formed, no matter what happens, the reality is for me, nothing in the ultimate sense changes. My king is still on his throne. My God is unsurprised. My God sits on the throne and he laughs, holding the kings of earth in derision as if they could overcome him. And now, on the, ba- on, on the back of bad news, that does become good news. The problem with us in America is that we have historically been too weak and too spiritually out of shape to deal with the power of the message of revelation, Right? Because in America, we have not experienced any sort of real persecution. In America, we are used to being at the center of society. In America, we are used to being able to boycott people into doing what we want. In America, you look at thing after thing after thing. Going all the way back to prohibition in America, Christians have historically been able to get involved with all kinds of social issues, forcing unbelievers to behave as we think believers should to the detriment and lack of focus on the gospel, by the way. But Christians are used to being at the center of society. In America, you are used to having a country that exists. You are used to having a country that guarantees your right to worship. You are used to people always saying nice things about you so that when you turn on the news and they say awful things about Christians, when you reopen the newspaper, and by open the newspaper, I mean click open the newspaper app on your phone, when you open the newspaper, you look and you read things and it says about Christians, we get shocked and we get dismayed and we get upset. But frankly, we have never had to deal with anything that makes our ability to understand what's being said in Revelation very strong because we've never had to do much, right? Uh, My friend was a missionary uh, to the United Arab Emirates. That's in Dubai. It is an Arab nation. It is predominantly Muslim. He was coming back to America, and one of his friends said to him there, let me give you a a prophecy. And he didn't mean like like anything. He just meant, "Let, let me speak something to you. He said, you're going to go back to America, and you're going to be disgusted with the marshmallow Christianity that you find. Right? And that is really is our reality because in America, our freedom to worship has been so great that we have forgotten to, to work out our faith with fear and trembling. We've forgotten what, what it takes. And so here's what I know. One of my sons said it best. We were timing him in a 40-yard in a 40, uh, a 40 run, and he was doing okay. But he said, yeah, but Dad, if I'm on a football field and somebody's chasing me, I'm way faster. Right? The reality is if something's chasing you, you work harder, you go harder. The church in America has, has had such unprecedented freedom that we have forgotten to stay plugged in to the depths of who Jesus is, and we have, we have forgotten to continue to work out our faith. So we've become like chunky, out of shape, marshmallowy Christian folk. And because of that, we have not had the ability to understand even what's being said in Revelation. And so while it might seem like awful news to hear that my suspicion is, is that 
your rights, and let's not even call what's happening to us right now even close to persecution, because frankly, there's people dying for their faith, right? ISIS chopped people's heads off on a beach, right? In America, they want they want a co-ed bathroom. Those are not the same. Those are not on the same level. And yet, at the same time, I do believe that we will experience increasing, increasing, increasing persecution. And on the one level, it will help us with this: is that it will help us to understand what is being said in Revelation in a way that we can dive into it. And it'll help us to appreciate the power of what it says when we read this, that Jesus himself is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. It'll help us to look into the background then in Psalms and understand that when the kings of the earth think that they've overcome and when the kings of the earth think that they've won and when the kings of the earth think that they've defeated it, when things like ISIS think that they've defeated the, the body of, of Jesus, it allows us to sit back and, and, and laugh with Jesus and understand Jesus is in control. He holds them in, he holds them in derision. The kings of the earth have nothing on him. And so, in reality, what's happening in our country might allow us to be the church and it might allow us to understand Revelation. I think I've quoted this before, but I like to quote it all the time when we, when we deal with persecution. What I think happens is that a lot of times, not always, in places like Algeria, persecution wiped out the wiped out the church. But a lot of times where persecution happens, the church grows. And the reason why is it forces you to look into the God that you serve. It forces you to stop depending upon the rulers of the kings of the earth and start depending upon the king upon the throne, right? And so one of my favorite quotes, though, is from, from a song by a guy named KB. When he was talking about persecution, he said this. He said, what are they going to do, murder us? All that murder does is send a surge of us to go and put churches up. And I think that there is the hope there is the hope that, that even as we in, encounter more and more struggle, that revelation in Scripture might become more real to us and that we might know then what it means to be a faithful martyr. But we'll, we'll move on from there. So that's who he is. The question, then, the question that I should have started with, should have given first is, who is your God? And it describes who your God is. He's him who is and was and is to come. He is the sevenfold spirit before the throne. That's the Holy Spirit. He is the faithful martyr, the faithful witness, the firstborn, the inaugurator of new creation, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is your God. Then John's going to go, that is your God. Here's what your God has done. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, to God his Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever. So what have they done? They have freed us. This, by the way, a, ref, uh, uh, a reference again to the Old Testament, a reference to Exodus, a reference to, to God's children uh, being set free from, from Pharaoh's control, a reference to the, to, the, uh, to the Day of Atonement, a reference to, to, the, to, to the, the blood put upon, uh, uh, put upon the doorpost. To, sorry, this is a, a reference to Passover, right? He has freed us. How has he freed us? His blood has been applied to the doorpost of our lives. The freedom has happened in, in his blood. He has freed us from our sins as he freed his children, as he freed, uh, uh, um, as he freed his children in the Old Testament. So now we, the people of God, have been set free. He has applied the blood to the doorpost. Uh, he, he has applied it by his son being held up as the sacrifice. Freed us from our sins uh, by his blood. And he has made us then a kingdom 
priest to his God and Father. So he has formed us, but what has he formed us into? He has formed us into a kingdom and priest. A lot of times when we, when he, we hear that, you might or might not be familiar with the term the priesthood of all believers, right? We emphasize this kind of, which by which we typically mean that all believers have the right to approach God directly, that, that um, fathers and mothers have the right to, to lead their family, that you have the, the, the priesthood of all believers, meaning that you can di uh, disciple, do those, those sorts of things. But usually it's a reference to personal piety and personal gift use. You have the ability to use your gifts in the church because that's the priest. But it, it, it should be noted here that one of the primary functions of the priest was to mediate between God and the people. That's what priests did. They mediated between God and the people. And so when it calls us a kingdom and priests, it is saying that the job of kingdom believers in this place and this time is to mediate between God and people. It is giving them a mission... A, a, a reason for the existence of the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be a kingdom and a priesthood. We mediate between God and the people. We bring the people to God. We help the people to God. It is giving us uh, our instructions for living in such a place in such a time. So then that we understand as, as America changes, as our country becomes whatever our country is to be, our mission does not change. Our mission is to mediate between God and the people. That is sometimes hard when we watch the people doing things that we, we philosophically, we religiously, we theologically disagree with. How can you do that? Why did you do that? How could you, right? But our job is not first to, to, to strike out against them, but rather to mediate between them and God. In other words, our goal and our hope would be that their hearts would be captured by, their hearts would be changed by, their lives would be overwhelmed by the freedom that we have encountered in the blood of Jesus and that the, that the, that the, the angel of death or the angel of judgment would pass them over too, that they might be freed like we have been freed. It is the job then of the church to mediate between God and the rest of the culture, to mediate between God and its, its surroundings. We mediate between God and the neighborhood. We mediate between God and the state. We mediate between God and the country. And so in, in that sense, no matter what happens in, in our country, it is our job to pray on their behalf. It is our job to seek God on their behalf. It is our job to speak truth on their behalf, even when they, they don't like it. It is our job to continue so... So some would say, if, if you give a message like I gave and said, hey, I don't know if America is going to be here, society is getting worse. Some would take what I would call the, the, the Amish route of, of dealing with that, right? So what did the Amish do? The Amish said, society is evil, and because society is evil and because society is bad, we will withdraw from society and we will go into our own enclave, right? So I am sure that they have in their, in their thought process something for witness, but from the outside, what I'm simply seeing is withdraw, and what I would suggest then is that is not the appropriate, the appropriate behavior for the kingdom of priests or kingdom and priests. They are not being priests because when they withdraw, they are not mediating between the brokenness of culture and the only hope, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the role of the church. We cannot withdraw. We might be increasingly, increasingly, increasingly pushed to the edge, 
we might be increasingly um, uh, viewed as less important in, in, in our culture. We might increasingly have less and less say, but we should not of our own volition run to the edge of our culture, set up our own little bunkers, go underground, and ignore what is going on. If we do so, we are not at that point being priests anymore because the priests mediate between the people and God. And our culture, no matter how bad it gets, will always need a mediator. It will always need someone to bring them to go between them and so we are to be witnesses in that that sense we are to be priests in that sense if if you understand what what i'm saying so he has formed us he's made us a kingdom priest to his god and fathers mediators between the brokenness of, of culture the brokenness of people and god so that goes back to that same concept on faithful faithful witnesses uh so that people might know who our god is they might know what our god has done uh, then it says this, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so there is much there. It, it is good. We've taken a lot of time. So we're, we're, going to, we're going to close it out, but simply say this. Who is your God? He is the triune God of Scripture. He's the one who is, who was, and is to come. He's the sevenfold spirit before, before the throne. He's the faithful witness. He's the inaugurator of new creation. He is the ruler of all kings. What has he done? He has freed us. He has placed the blood above the doorpost of our lives so that, so that judgment passed us over, so that we could be moved into relationship with him, so that he could make us a kingdom, his people, and priests on behalf of that kingdom, mediators uh, uh, between God and, 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 and the, the culture, God and, and those who do not know God. And because of this, because of this, what then? Because of this, to him belongs glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because he's done that, he deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be praised, right? Sometimes I think we want something hyper-practical, right? Give me three things to do as soon as, I, as soon as I go home. And sometimes as a preacher, I feel bad because I don't often give you that. But frankly, I'm called to exposit this book. I'm called to preach this book, and this book does not give you that. It's not there. What it does give you this is it says, because he is that, because he's done this for you, to him belong the glory and the honor and the dominion, the glory and dominion forever and ever. So what should your response be? Your response should be to lean into your role as a priest. Your role should be to lean into your role as a member of the kingdom. Your response should be to lean into this reality that you have a God who is in charge of everything. We're going to get into later on the power of why he's in charge of everything, and it is crazy awesome. He's in charge of everything. You have a God who's not let one thing fall from his grasp. You have a Holy Spirit who sits before the throne. You have a, have a spirit who, who sits before the throne, and you have giving glory and honor to the one, the Son, who is the faithful witness, the faithful martyr who died for you to rescue you and bring you to him. The response then to this should be that you worship that God, eternally existent as three in one. Your response should be to be more full of love, more full of awe. Your response should be as what happens often in the book of Revelation. Your response should be to fall on your face and realize that you are not worthy to even be in the presence of this God. And yet, through Jesus, you're invited in. 
That should be your response to cry out, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He deserves glory. And the point of Scripture, I think the ultimate point of Scripture, deals with the ultimate sin that we commit. The point of Scripture is that God deserves to worship, be worshipped. God deserves glory and honor. The major sin that all of us commit are sins of worship. Because when we sin, what we're essentially doing is saying, I don't worship that God, I worship this thing. And when you say that worship, you worship that thing, what you're ultimately saying is, you worship yourself. So the point of the text and the point of the scripture should drive you to this. He is a good God. And when I say good, it's like good that is not even encapsulated in English. English can't express his goodness. He is a great God. And when I say great, great cannot even be encapsulated in English. He is an awesome God. And when I say awesome, trust me, awesome cannot be encapsulated in English. There is no words I could stand here and say to the rest of time that would encapsulate the greatness of a God who was and is and is to come, always has been, always will be, always the same, sent his son to die to be the faithful martyr, the witness in all uh, the inaugurator of new creation so that you and I could be a kingdom and priest mediators between the brokenness of our world and the healing that is found in our Father. Because of that, to Him belong dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's where we go this morning. I encourage you, there's... Verse 8's powerful. Verse 8's powerful. It's great. It's also another 45 minutes if I get into it. But here's what I'm going to encourage you. It fits with the, with the theme of the whole. It's powerful. And I encourage you to be in your Bibles regularly. And I encourage you to read that over again and again. We read where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and is to come. The Almighty. Can't say anything else because I start get lunch okay so we're not going to go but here's here's what i want you to encounter we have made the book of revelation into a mystical story about dragons and about beasts and about uh, armageddon wars and all of these sorts of things and those things will show up but what i what I know is this, is that we're missing the point if we don't get that this. The point, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again, people will try and get you to focus on dragons. But Jesus is the dragon. And you can encounter the Father, and you encounter the Spirit, and you encounter Jesus in this part of Revelation. If Revelation is true, then the trajectory of our society continues as it is. You need the book of Revelation, and I need the book of Revelation more than we've ever needed it. May God impress upon our hearts the power of He who is at the center of His pages, of He who is at the center of the throne. And to Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me.